Hey, y'all, this is Monica here with an episode. This is a best of, another best of, from a conversation I had with Ian Davis on the multipolar world order. He did a series on that. Of course, it addresses my favorite question, what is the true nature of power in the world today? And in his case, he's answering the question in the world tomorrow. So we had three long conversations on this. What we have for you today is a highlight reel from that first conversation. So I really distilled it down to the best bits. It's still a fairly long episode, uh, but I think even if you heard it the first time, this will it's punchy and you'll get a lot out of it. So I hope you enjoy that. I also wanted to say thank you very much for all the prayers that y'all have offered my mother and me and the emails and the condolences much appreciated and I do hope over time to share some of the wonderful insights and um, just a wisdom that she imparted to me in her last couple of months and really last couple of years love to share some of that with y'all and I plan to do that because I'm doing a lot more solo shows and I want to get back to what I used to do on WSB, which was analyze the news of the day, current events, not only with an eye towards separating fact from fiction, but getting us back to the touchstone of the Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, of our foundational principles, of understanding you know, just the right and wrong of what people are doing in our name. The media is dedicated to muddying those waters, and I would like to redouble my efforts in in trying to discern, <laughs> offer a little discernment when it comes to what's happening in the world today. So please look forward to that as I relaunch the Monica Perez show. And in the meanwhile, please enjoy this highlight reel from my conversation with Ian Davis on the multipolar world order. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me, Monica. It's a pleasure. It's nice to be here. Oh, my gosh. So I had, I was just telling you, uh, tell the listener, because they any anybody who listens to my interviews, I pretty much always ask, what's the true nature of power in the world and the universe? And like, where does actual competition begin and the theater of it all end? And when I read your stuff, when I look at what's happening, like in Bolivia or um, Venezuela, when I see our the kind of corpo-governmental continuum, the, the globalists, whatever you want to call them, go into these countries and build their factories and um, have the people work there. And then you got you get like socialist or communist movements to react to that. It's very hard for me to get my mind around that because I see what's, uh, how to think about it, because I see what's very wrong with what people, what outsiders are doing to interfere with the country and then they go and they change the laws because they want it to be conducive to United Fruit or whatever. Mm. Uh, but I also, I, I find it hard to get my mind around how the people would want communism. Like there, there should be a better way, but I can't help but be sympathetic to the guy who is, you know, the Bolivian guy or, or whatever, where he's like an indigenous person yeah. who seems to want to represent what what are being argued as collective interest of indigenous people. But I know government can't be trusted. And I just, so for me, I have to come from the right to be sympathetic to this kind of imperialism. And you're coming from the left. And I just, I, you know, how do you integrate that? How do you keep 
you know, how do you deal with with the pure ideology versus the practical reality in how you view the world, how you judge, how you judge what's happening? Well, I think you need the nail on the head there when you just said that, you know, uh, uh, it's just a perspective. So an ideology that you might be familiar with, that you grew up with or that you've you know, you've come to adopt over the years, you're right, it's just a perspective. And one of and one of the things, and, I, and I've been quite dogmatic over the years about my beliefs, you know, especially when I was in the unions and so forth, you know, so, you know, the idea of in the, in the UK, we call the Conservatives the Tories, and I was yes. bit fiercely opposed to the Tories, you know, so, and that, that was from a, uh, I guess there was all, there's a cultural element to that as well. But I think one thing that, this kind of latterly as my as my sort of career has changed path and I've been doing more writing and and meeting more people like yourself and working with people like UK Column and so forth um that's really challenged my perception of of this right left paradigm and I'm and I now am starting I mean I've always suspected that that the divisions a lot of the divisions are put in society for a reason you know, it, it, that the keeping us divided, the old older adage of divide and rule is is a you know it's a it's a working policy. It's not a it's not it's not a meaningless trope. You know, so um, I and I've come to be more acutely aware of that as 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 you know as time's gone by, and I've realised now that certainly coming at it from a looking at it from from what the effect of the kind of what you might call the globalist mindset or i've called the public private partnership or whatever you want to call it um that 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 keeping us divided is one of the key mechanisms for controlling us because while we are squabbling with each other when you boil it down to to, to brass tacks when you get right down to it what do most people want they want they want a decent standard of living if they can achieve it. They want health and safety for themselves and their family. They want their children to prosper. They want to have a peaceful life. And now I think that's the same pretty much everywhere. I think, you know, it may take us, it takes people a different amount of time to, to get to that point. And sometimes circumstances won't allow people to get ever to get to that point. But most people would like, you know, most people that I would suggest that that's what they want. They don't, they don't particularly want to harm anybody else. So it doesn't really matter what your, your, your ideology is. Your needs and your hopes for the future are pretty much the same across the board, I think. And I think we are closer to each other and we are, we've got far more in common with each other than the people that would seek to divide us would like us to, would like us to know. And actually, it frustrates me when people get heated and don't like each other over politics, which has happened in this country, probably in years too, recently, as the underlying ideology of both parties support the welfare warfare super state, like 100%. And then the people still get all worked up and people in my family have radically different ideologies. And I just laugh. I'm like, I don't care at all what you think, because it doesn't matter does not matter what you think. We have no control. The voting is just for us to uh, think that we have a part of it. It does matter that there's corruption and lies and the facts aren't true and the press is completely controlled. We can all agree on that. Anybody with eyes to see, I mean, and if you can't see it, you're obviously totally immersed in that psyop, which they have gotten a lot of people. But there's one little wrinkle, and then I want to talk about your article. 
But one little wrinkle to this, like kind of two-party psyop that I see coming up as like a second order thing where in the alt space, you'll see somebody who was maybe a former CIA agent who really comes with the with the goods, you know, or used to be in the mainstream media and really has like the kind of depth of research that you bring and this oh, high level connections or whatever. And so today there was an article or recently an article in the Atlantic. This doctor thinks that he got can- his cancer recurred because of the booster. Like why are they, when there's something that seems very conspiracy oriented, but it's coming out in either a mainstream outlet or an alternative person from that background, I, I always smell a rat. I, I read Cass Sunstein's Cognitive Infiltration or whatever Cass Sunstein's Conspiracy Theory essay recently. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he goes no. into... You, are you not familiar with that? Well, he's recent. Has he written... I'm, no, I'm, 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. He, he wrote that and it's about cognitive infiltration and it's very kind of broad brush and every even the things that he thought this will never work, they did. Yeah. Like banning, taxing, you know, the, the, the cancel culture is a tax, demonetizing is a tax, banning censorship, all the things that he rejected is like, well, they, nobody will stand for that. Every single idea he had has already been obviously implemented and surely more so. I feel like even in the alternative space, you have now these controlled opposition actors, but some of them, I mean, some really huge people, maybe you could say Alex Jones or something, but, you know, at some, I I just would like your opinion as to the purpose they serve. Is it just corralling like a honeypot so that the ideas are contained, so that the really big guys don't flirt with the edges of the truth? Or do you have any opinion on that? I am aware that there are, you know, what what in people that infiltrate, you know, that there are people that come into this space and they have an agenda and they they you know, not necessarily a nefarious agenda, but they might might be just it might be as simple as a commercial agenda, you know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I got you. Know, you. But, but there are people that, you know, say things to order and write and possibly some people that write things to order as well. But I don't care. Yes. Because I, because I, because I kind of think all information is, is beholding upon the, the reader or the listener or the, the recipient of that information to always to do their due diligence and check the, the sources, check the information, check what the, what the person's claiming. So it, it really doesn't matter what they claim. Because it's not up to them to convince you. It's not, up, and I, I think this very much about journalism as well. It's not up to the journalist to convince you. It's up to you as the reader to to get what you can from what they're trying to say, regardless of what the information is. Totally, I've got to say, you hit the nail on the head for me because I have this expression like, I, as far as limited hangouts go, I get more out of them than they get out of me. So let's. Stipulate, if you would, that our Edward Snowden's full of it and it's our PSYOP and yet Putin acknowledges it as if it were real. Same thing with like ISIS and 9-11. Putin mm-hmm. plays into those things. So I, I've always seen with Putin, yet I also dug into the 2014 coup in the Ukraine and mm-hmm. I absolutely couldn't believe it took Putin eight years to, and I, I mean, he ha- simply had to step in, in my opinion, or the day Ukraine went NATO, we have World War Three because... Russia's occupying Crimea and they consider that an invasion. It would be of a NATO country. So 
part one of your series, which talks about UN, which talks about switching, I guess, from the unipolar world order to the multipolar world order and how Putin plays into that. Can you just maybe start from square one and just even define those two terms? What is the unipolar versus the multipolar? And do you like it or is there hope on either end or not? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, these are terms that have been given to us. So I think it was it was um, Stuart Patrick from he was among the people, but Stuart Patrick from the Council on Foreign Relations kind of, I guess, elucidated what the what the international rules based order is or whatever that which is the term we have become more familiar with over, I would say, the last, what, five, six years. I think that's come more to the fore. But really, IRBO, is that the, the thing? I, the IRBO, yeah, the, or, or international rules-based system. I mean, I, I remember, I think it was Theresa May, our, our former prime minister, when she was, um, I think it might have been before she was prime minister, uh, I remember her talking about the international rules-based system and me thinking that that's sitting kind of uncomfortably with me. So I thought, well, what about international law? I thought that was the system. I mean, you, you could go, so there, there seemed to be at that point, I think this was, you know, we're talking about the kind of 2010, sometimes around there, a bit later, there was this change, this shift from, from putting all the emphasis on international law and starting talking about this va much vaguer concept of rules. Well, rules aren't law, are they? Rules suggest that someone's making them up. Yes. I mean, I, I would, I would argue that international law is very much like that. But yes, I don't even think there is such a thing as international yeah, no, law. Thank law. God. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, if you so, if we go, if we go back, so uh, really, it's in the post-war, the post-war settlement. We've got the United Nations set up, and at that point, obviously, economically, the 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 U.S. has won the Second World War. Um, you could argue militarily that, that that Russia won it, you know, and Europe, Europe are in the in a in a a, a state of turmoil and in a, a period of restructuring. So really, that leaves America as the the hegemon, and then we get the the, the Cold War because Russia of you know militarily of, uh, uh, equal in in many regards and certainly in nuclear terms. So then we get the Cold War. And at that point, you could call that a bipolar system. But then, you know, in the 70s, then we get the, the, the U.S. coming off the gold standard. And then we get the, the kind of economic, the beginning, the emerging sort of economic neoliberalism that comes to the fore at the end of the century. And then we get, obviously, the end of the, of the um, Soviet Union, the Soviet Union collapses. And that's when we get what you might call the unipolar world order. And that's when people like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs and people like that, the think tanks, they start talking about the unipolar in earnest. They, they, they really start talking about it in earnest. And is that the US-UK axis or is it, which is what, which is on top? Is, is Israel in there? Is it a triangle? The idea, the idea is, isn't it, is the, oh, how do you put this? I suppose the official story of the unipolar world order is that the US is the hegemon. Yeah. But then you, but then you could go back to look at things like the transatlantic alliance and then if you if you Montague and the Fed Yeah, and you've got you've got, you know, so for you know, you could go back to the Rhodes Roundtable movement and the right, right. Kindergarten. CFR and all that is a daughter of the Chatham House. Yeah, so CFR not a but, parent. It's no, it's it's a relationship. So you've got something called like like 
even now, for example, you still have the Pilgrim Society. So the Pilgrim Society, when the the first engagement that the US ambassador has in Britain is to go and speak at the Pilgrim Society, and that's vice versa. The first engagement that the UK ambassador has in, in the US is to go and speak to the Pilgrim Society, which is a, a transatlantic, these people are transatlanticists. They, they believe in this kind of unification of the two, two things. Now, you could argue from a political point of view that, you know, probably since, you know, the 1970s onward, that the US, what's in that for the US, really? Because the US, Europe has grown up to be something of a of a, a challenge to, to the US power, certainly within NATO, as, as Europe were moving towards military unification, as they were in the last few years, which I would suggest may have something to do with um events that are happening at the moment you know because it's certainly in the u.s interests for europe not to be a dominant force within nato which potentially it could have been and especially also you've got the germans for who are the heart of the eu the germans were forging this closer trade relationship with russia so it was in the U.S. interests. From I mean, that started the First World War, didn't it? It's uh, yeah, and that's it. So from that's, so it's got uh, from Russia's geopolitical uh, from the U.S.'s geopolitical interests and strategic interests aren't served by that relationship flourishing. So you know that, but that doesn't mean that that's. The, I'm not suggesting for one moment that that is the cause of what's thing. But but all of these things fit together. I would say in a broader framework that is based upon the sharing and the distribution of power at a level that exists below, above the political. So, you, so you've got political power, which, you know, the people that, the, the, how politics works. So I would put Putin and Xi Jinping and Biden and, you know, people like Pelosi. that. Pelosi and people that put them in the, at the political level of power. So these are the the people that we are given face. to face. To face. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're the PR people. They're the people that are put there for us to 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 relate to. But above them, and I would say it is above them, yeah. is a network of international capital, and it's global capital. So this is this is the the, the people that control the, the the flow of capital around the world. Their interests are also served by the machinations of the nation state. So the machinations of the nation state for them. Sorry. Yep. I had to ask. So I would argue that Larry Fink is the BlackRock guy, is the Pelosi of BlackRock and not the master. Because if you look at his backstory, he was a failure several times over Mm -hmm. and he's the most powerful guy in the world. So again, a face job. But could you name one name of someone who you would say, or is it an entity? Give me a, a proper noun of the one level above Pelosi and Putin. Uh, Augustin Carstens at the Bank of International Settlement. And, and so. he's the head of the Bank of International Settlements? He is. And I mean, but then again, so, so if you take an organization like BlackRock, so... As you quite rightly said, Larry Fink is the face of BlackRock. 
But who is the board? The board of directors is driving yes, this activity yes, yes. of BlackRock. So there's actually ten guys who are getting together, and they have their yeah. own interests. There, I mean, I don't mean to sound ignorant. I I was a banker, so I like I get how boards yeah. work. But it, but sometimes what you see is not what you get. So, it, but I would argue, I would, I think that's acceptable to say. It thinks sitting in a room with ten guys who we don't know who before he got into the room hashed it out give them his marching orders. They probably have still more stuff to hash out, but they're all aligned. It's kind of like why Putin would accept ISIS and 9-11 and Snowden because he doesn't actually want to pull back the curtain because he uses the levers that are behind the curtain. Exactly. And that just isn't it. That's why they say that it was totally uncool for the Democrats to do Iran contra to Reagan. And that's why they impeached Clinton because you just look what happens when you start pulling back the curtain. You know, nobody mm. wants that. So I, I think, never, yeah, maybe there's that. And of course, everybody, you know, a secret that is kept is useful, isn't it? Especially if the, yeah. if your especially if your opponent, yes, are aware that you have that yeah. secret. You know, so so I mean, you know, the, the who yeah, why give it up? It? Yeah, why give it up? I mean, that's that's the point. It's leverage, isn't it? It's yeah, and and it has value. And this is why when I get trolls, like real very annoying, like Twitter or whatever, when I was on the radio, like it would be so annoying. I would never say, fuck off troll, because then I would have to discover the troll that took that troll's place. Yeah, so I would just yeah. act like I didn't know because it would give me a, an understanding of the situation that I would not have if I gave up my inf my occulted knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, I mean then, then, then we start talking about that. I mean, talking I know. about <laughs> I mean, if you're going to talk about like the uh, the upper kind of echelon, I mean, I I don't know much about the black nobility, right? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, either. I don't know much about them. Yeah. I know people that know a lot more about it than I do, and it, and it, and I must admit, it is something that fascinates me. But oh, I, you have I, to tell me a name. I need to talk to this person. Yeah, well, um, oh. I mean, you don't have to do it now, but like, get get me a name. I'll, I'll give, get me I'll a give brain a to pick. I'll give you a couple of names okay. after after this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it does seem, if you look at the kind of history of kind of, you go back to kind of Venetian banking and things like that. So yes. I, I look at things very much from, I guess, a financial perspective, because I see, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the, the bankers are in charge, but I, I would say that finance is in charge. Yes. And, and money. And money. It's everything. Yeah. It's everything. It's almost like, isn't it? It's like the, it's like the, 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 the veins of a body. It's the thing that keeps the keeps the blood flowing, that keeps everything going. I feel ironically, or maybe the opposite of ironic, I feel like it's the zeros and ones of binary. It's that everything looks like it's a mosaic of whatever, mm. but it's really just pixels that can be reduced down to those zeros and ones, those dollars and cents. And it's funny because they are actually going to do that when they transition money to just pure blockchain or pure central bank digital currency, whatever, will actually be the zeros and ones that make up the mosaic of our world. And I mean, who knows if they'll even blur the line between the money and the metaverse. I don't oh. know, but I've heard you talk about that stuff. We're not talking about it now, but you and I can talk about that in part four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I'll just say now, yes, they, yes, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so so we've got the finance guys are the guys on top, for sure. And yeah. the unipolar, multi, we were talking about the unipolar, multipolar. Is that really, is there really a distinction there? And do you favor it or not? But the unipolar world we were defining 
as this, um, you know, I said, was it US, UK, Israel? Is it a triangle? Is it a dot? Is it the Queen? Is it Rhodes? And it's really the 10 guys on the board. Yeah, it's just, it's a, I would say it's a transatlantic alliance of shared yeah. interests that seeks to impose a single hegemony using the US as, as the military and the economic driver of that. Okay, so, yeah, go ahead. Give me an end then. Yeah, no, that's it. Okay, so, so I, I get that. And then I start thinking, was there a point at which they did actually, so I, I always, one theory I read and I think is maybe true is Rockefeller wanted to have a world monopoly on oil. That was the way he was going to control the world forever. And he was smart. He lived a long time. He was the richest guy in the world. And he thought intergenerationally. And the first thing he did was take out the czar because the czar might have had the same idea. And if you replace it with a bunch of communists, you're probably not going to get the industrial powerhouse that could give Rockefeller a run for his money. I'm talking about like 100 years ago or more. I actually wonder now if after 100 years, they, Big T, they in the West realize we are never getting that monopoly. Like Putin's back or or Xi Jinping has like human capital, has all this stuff. So they, that Eurasian island, the world island is is has become self-aware there we almost got them you know the west almost completely got control of the world uh government or whatever but it wouldn't even make sense for the west to do it would be a complete coup of like the island nations to dominate the world island like that and and that uh so so i'm resting right now on that way of thinking of it like it was kind of there were times especially when the russia was behind the iron curtain and east germany and stuff where it looked like we were the only game in town for real prosperity and world dominance. And now, even though we probably wanted to control the landing on all that, uh, it was just not possible. There's too much kind of gravitas on that end of the scale. And and now there is a real battle ensuing between what... I mean, so far, do I make any sense? Or do you think I'm... No, no, I, no, I, I understand that. I mean, I, the only thing I would say to that is, is I don't think there was ever a moment where the 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 US unipolar leaders of the US unipolar world order thought they could maintain it. I don't think there was ever a moment. Because if you if you if you look at um like the Wesley think, Clark episode. Yeah. Well there's that, yeah. But I mean if you if you look at um the things that the Trilateral Commission was saying in the 1970s. So if you look at what Bezazinski was saying, this is even before he became Carter's advisor. So so just just the, the work that he was doing in the think tanks and in the sort of policy development area and his books, of course. He, they, there was an acceptance there that the, that the notion of a single country being the hegemon of the world couldn't, couldn't yeah, be sustained. It, it couldn't be sustained. Uh, and when he was looking towards the Eurasian landmass, I mean, I, th- I can't remember his precise words, but it was something like, you know, that there's just no way that you can control uh, uh, that many people with so many, such a diverse array of different cultures, different languages. Diff- you know, it's just, unless you're going to wage some sort of all-out global war and just do it by military conquest. Or just digitize everyone. I mean, well, that's what they're doing, right? So, so I think I think the idea of a global. So then, then you've got the. Okay, slight so I understand what you're saying. Thank you. Yes. So you got a, so you got a slight difference between the aspirations of people that seek global dominion and power, 
and their practical ability to do it, bearing in mind that most of these people are probably just as realistic as anybody else. So they're realists as well. They might have some wacky ideas like eugenics and all that kind of thing, but they're realists. So they know, and they were certainly writing about, and the think tanks were talking about the fact that they couldn't impose a, a one-world system of just brute force rule on everybody. That isn't going to work. So then this idea starts to emerge, and I would say that the Rockefellers were very much part of this, and this happened in the post-war period. You know, and this is prior, obviously, to what the trilateral trilateralists were talking about. But this idea of global governance. So this idea that, all right, okay, so we can't rule by force, and we can't rule by fiat, and we might not even be able to rule completely by economic means. But we can have a system of global governance. So if we have a system of global governance, that is a, a pinch point at which we can exert influence. And, you know, I think, you know, that I've, I've spoken about what um, Rothkopf called the superclass, where he was talking about their ability to move millions of people and move finance across borders. So he's talking about what I've called the oligarchs. We can, he called them the superclass. But, but what he said was that that ability is a force multiplier. So yes. if, they, if, if, they, if they lend their, their economic or uh, resource weight to one side or the other, then that gives that side an advantage. Yeah, I so, caught that in your article and I thought that was a brilliant way of looking at it. Like, even when you look at the LIBOR scandal, which nobody yeah, yeah. knows about the biggest scandal. It, yeah. I mean, that was a matter of fractions of a penny yeah. But the difference that it made yeah. changed the, the position of the person in power. It multiplied his 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 power and it changed the world a little bit. It made differences and that you wouldn't even know. They were fixing the rates for absolutely years. And then the, to pin it on a couple of traders and just say that, you know, oh yes. well, they, they they did it, they did it at the weekend. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, if they, I mean, if they were just a couple of rogue traders, then they would have picked it up. Which, but, which they argue that they did, and we picked it up really quickly. And then it comes out about three or four years later. No, actually, it was going on for more than a decade. And 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 there's more. The fact that it's possible. So I always say this: like, you can give Obama, you love Obama, give Obama all this power, make the president really, really powerful because he's so great. But you better watch out who comes next. Yeah. Right. And then they got Trump. I'm like, that's why you can't because something of that power will attract people who want to exploit it. So if there was that kind of a hole in the LIBOR system, it would inevitably attract somebody who would exploit it. So it's it's impossible for me to believe that like all these super, super high level guys above the traders were totally above, you know, I didn't notice, didn't notice, didn't know it was possible, <laughs> never exploited it. And then on top of but what it really says is. This the reason you don't think all that stuff is rigged from the get-go anyway is because you have faith in those regulatory systems. But they can obviously be circumvented and perforce must be over time. Eventually, those things, arbitrage opportunities, whether they're criminal or not, get exploited. Like they don't... So think of all the underpinnings in the system. Like um, George Soros supposedly front-ran the Bank of England. Yeah, no, yeah, the the man who bankrupted the Bank of England, yeah, yes, and by short and, by short by shorting the pound and, against uh, against the the German mark, what was then the German mark? Oh, you know, but but by by doing that, um, basically betting against his own investment. But here, here's the 
here's my question because I actually haven't studied it, but just in knowing that kind of just a meme, I'm thinking of all the things to get ahead of in finance, his genius, his miracle foresight happened to be something that the Bank of England I, I could have played into his hands. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, okay, because my, my I, idea I, I is... I think he saw an opportunity and he seized it. And I mean, nothing that he did was illegal. There was nothing... There was I nothing. just wonder if he got a tip. Well, it certainly smacked <laughs> off inside If you trade, could get a tip it? on yeah. anything, it would be currency, is what I'm saying. Currency, oh, yeah, yeah. this is the stuff that the government actually controls and regulates and can make those decisions, whereas the ups and downs of um, some individual stock may be you could get an insider, but I'm just saying he could have gotten an inside tip. And uh, and th just the fact that that kind of thing is possible in the LIBOR, yeah, yeah. who knows where else it's having an impact. I, I really didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but I no, think but it just I mean, belies the, the true potential for corruption and I the mean, facade you, that we see. Yeah, I mean, if you think about there are people, I mean, this is what we're talking about, the ability to like move billions. Now, there are people that have got portfolios that can shift billions around the markets. Now, you don't need to be, you don't even need to be that cute to be able to very quickly figure out that you can play the market. I mean, if you if you take billions out of one stock, you know that stock's gonna dive, don't you? You've just taken right. billions, you've just taken billions out of right. it. Right, and then buy it back the next day. So buy it back the next day. You know, I mean it's it's not even rocket science. You yeah, know, I mean it's not it's not complex. It's if yeah. you've if you've I think the thing with one of the problems that we have, and something that I've spoken about before, is that if if certain people are accumulate and i'm not i'm not sure what that point is but if you accumulate sufficient capital then you really at that point you're on a you're on a trajectory where capital just just you can use that capital to just yes. get more and just it's more, a tipping and more, point. And more and more and more it's a tipping point yes yeah. i agree but i i also would say that in my libertarian world of view that accumulate for many, many people to accumulate billions of dollars like that and have these like kind of monopolistic or oligopolistic industries is almost, if not always, almost always, if not always, a function of barriers to entry, of regulatory barriers to entry. I don't, I don't even like patents and copyright. You know, I just, I feel like you want to do something cool. You want to make your first billion by introducing something new to the market. That's great. The next guy is definitely going to make it cheaper and better because he's just going to look at yours. You're not going to get every single thing from the idea mm -hmm. to the conception to the prototype. That's rare that the first is the best. It's just rare. And yeah. and that he's good at everything. He's good at scaling up. He's Zuckerberg, a dropout, and the guy who goes before Congress, and the guy who runs the company, the guy who builds the company, makes the biggest company in the world from the garage. Like those are different guys. So I feel like a lot of these, um, the the billionaire class, if you want to call it the oligarchs, they aren't even. It, they're not just rich guys. They're political actors, and they are tapping into that. Continue. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I do, and I think you also need to think, question some of these kind of, I mean, like certainly like Bill Gates. I mean, it, how easy to become a billionaire if your mum gets you a con sole contract supplier for the biggest computer company for in the IBM, world? I mean, that, yeah, who know, could have that, done that, it themselves? That, that, that makes it. That makes it. They easier. could have just hired him. That makes it. <laughs> I mean, and uh, you know, when we look at people like Jeff Bezos, who. Who's uh, you think it's about his grandfather the, was I mean, the head yeah, of yeah, but you think about his when he got that initial investment, which was something crazy like 500 million dollars straight off the bat for, the, for his initial investment. 
So his business model that he was presenting was that the margins are so small, I mean, we're talking 0.001%, right, profit. At best. But, but, but if you give me 500 million, I, I will make, you know, eventually, eventually I'll take over the world. Now, Eventually, though, was like 30 yeah, years, right? Yeah, yeah. But but the point is, to give, who were the people that invested in him initially that thought, yeah, this is a good investment? Because because initially, his pitch must have sounded like a completely crazy idea. But he still managed to get all the investment. I remember. He still managed to get all the money. I think I remember seeing a red herring for that IPO back in the day. So I must have been a cognizant <laughs> adult when that happened. And for years after that, and, and I remember people saying like, it doesn't make any money and the business plan is losses yeah. basically forever. Like there's no, you know, you do a, a, a projection, five-year projection, 10-year projection. They're like at no point does it ever make money. Who's investing in this? But of course, it was a great thing to invest in. And I, right. for years after that, I kept looking. It was like, it may, I, maybe my memory doesn't serve, but I believe it did not make any money, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, until kind of recently, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a business model that was dependent upon global dominion. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's, that's my business and, model. I and, need to rule the world. Uh, hilariously, he said once he knew he was going to make it, he went and bought an apartment or, or or rented an apartment that was in a basement, so he could say like he ran it out of his basement. So it, he so he had that kind of a, a story, like yeah. the rest of them have Steve Jobs and whatever Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. So the optics, uh, bizarrely. And then you get like Facebook. I mean, the, all the links with Facebook and the, yeah, know, the intelligence agencies and everything. I mean. You do look at these things. I mean, I'm sure there, there there are obviously, and there have been over the years, many sort of self-made, self-made entrepreneurs and business people that have gone on to great success that are self-made. But I think there is a there is also a group of people who uh, are assisted, and I think there and I think they're assisted per- perhaps because somebody else sees the potential of their idea for themselves. You know, they're, they're yeah. ident- they're, they're the potential of that idea, for example, Bezos presents this idea of, of online, of an online everything, right? Now, if you're, if that it was isn't going to make store, yeah, that, yeah, that isn't, isn't going to make money. Yeah. So, but you can see the potential that it could supply the world for everything. And, and for me, this, this whole era, the modern era of the American billionaire being somebody who's p- played behind the scenes, I actually think that that's, you know, I, I think Walmart maybe has a history like that. The big tech has a history like that. But prior to kind of what I noticed to be the Obama era, the government-connected rich was really not as much of a rule here as I, I seem to observe in other regions of the world. But now, because the more regulations you put up, the more it, the more you have to use political means to, even to allow you to do business. I don't even really necessarily blame people who have to. I, I actually think bribing a politician shouldn't be a crime against the person who does the bribing because he doesn't no, have the no, public no, trust. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you think about it, they're just influencing a politician. Well, that's what we all do when we try and, and lobby you, by them, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's and, what we all try to do. And if they're sta- standing in your way, they might be doing it on purpose. But I do want to, I want to, so that's the unipolar. What, can you define multipolar? What does that mean? 
Uh, no, I can't define it. I don't no, think anybody. I don't think anybody can define it at the moment. I mean, the idea is that the that the uh, Chinese and the Russians have put forward not just them as well, the BRICS as well, and um, you know also the, you know, a lot of developing nations that are on board with it with the idea, uh, which is a good thing. You know, you could argue that's a good thing. Um, is that it would be that the UN, which is basically I've argued in the first article, is that actually if you look at the UN Charter, it's a it's a blueprint for global governance and the centralization of authority in, in global governance because the Security Council, I think I use the Security Council, is made king by the Charter. The, the General Assembly really doesn't have any authority at all. It's all down to the Security Council and the Secretariat, which brings us down to, which is the interesting part, is that when the League of Nations became the United Nations, the Rockefellers... Um, more or less funded the the that transition and were the the money not not part of the money but they were the money behind the what what later became the secretariat of the United Nations so they they created the infrastructure of the United the the administrative infrastructure of the United Nations and I think they did it at a meeting in San Francisco with Alger Hiss in attendance who I believe like went to jail as a communist spy but those guys had a history of wanting to establish a world government it was it was either a stepping stone or prototype or beta or whatever of they wanted to be a world government, I believe, with the ability to tax and enforce laws. I think that was like the kind of two pieces that they always wanted, but they couldn't quite get. I mean, that is the ultimate thing, isn't it? I mean, if, in order for a work for, I, I often talk about global governance, which is the idea of developing policy agenda, which then gets filtered down to national governments who convert those policy agenda. So a classic example would be sustainable development is an idea, it's, and, and then you might put out some kind of seminal documents that say about this is where we're heading, so Agenda 2030, Agenda 21, but it's not law. You know, you're not, in, you're not imposing that on a nation state. But then that filters down to the nation state, and the nation state then converts that into legislation and hard and fast policy, which has an impact on us. Yes, and and they do it coercively. I just did a show yesterday where I talked about a White House executive order, obviously, from February 2nd, 2021. It was one of the first things Biden did. And in it, it's about immigration. It's about immigration. There's a crisis, humanitarian, yada, yada. And in, I think, like the very last little item that they said they were going to do was uh, make sure that the countries of the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala used domestic funding to establish sustainable development protocols and execute on them. So they literally, in this whole thing where they're using U.S. tax dollars to set up this whole migration thing, this whole training thing, this whole humanitarian effort, and in the White House executive order, it just goes on and on about the the government interference that we are proposing in those regions. But the last thing being that they were going to dedicate their own resources. Now we could just give them the resources, but they want them to dedicate their own resources. So I feel like it's almost an enslavement to get them indebted because it's not productive to do that sustainable. And I would say this whole like universal international financial tax may be the foundation of world government in that they will establish an international tax. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they, they've already the G twenty have already kind of signed up to that idea of having a. I mean, the the idea is, of, and how this is always works as well is you always present the idea 
in an in an appealing light. So I mean, they they presented the idea of this global tax to stop international multinational corporate tax evasion. So who's not who's not yeah. going to support that? Always in the name of anti-corruption. Yeah, Yeah, it's anti-corruption. We're going to we're going to ensure we're going to set this fifteen percent level globally that corporations have to pay minimum minimum corporate tax level globally. Now, most people ask most people they'll think, great, that's fantastic. Yeah, so they should. You know, everyone's fed up with with the multinationals offshoring their profits. Everyone everyone's fed up with that. But of course, what you're actually creating is a, is an, is a structure yes. to enable a globe, single centralized control of a global tax system, and that is that is you're right. They are absolutely that that is the f- basis of government rather than governance. Okay, so the UN has set this up, and is that something that you, when from your article that? Putin and Xi embrace that as their power base. So does that mean that we are, that the US and the UK are against it? Or, you know, where do they start? Where does it start converging? Well, okay. So what I've argued in the the article is that the the idea has always been to create what we are now calling the multipolar world order, because the idea was to have more multilateralism, right? So you can't have, but, the, the point of the multilateralism from, from the Chinese and the Russian perspective is that it's a power, a, a rebalancing of power. Their argument is to stop, obviously, the US and the, and the G7-centric control and dominance of the Security Council, the UN Security Council, which gives them undue authority and power on the global stage and enables them, let's face it, to act with impunity. So it makes things like, you know, the destruction of Libya and the destruction of Iraq and, the you know, the bombing of Bosnia. And it makes all these things easy for them to do because they can, they can, they're in charge. Well, not in charge, but they can. They there's control. nobody minding them. There's, yeah, there's nobody, no watchers. Watching. There's no watchers, right? So the Chinese and the, basically, fundamentally, the Chinese and the Russian argument is that by introducing more multilateralism into this system, we can diffuse that power at the UN level. We can have a maybe have more people. They're talking about having Brazil and South Africa in the UN as permanent members of the UN Security Council. So that would diffuse this this concentration of power. It would lead to a more peaceful, peaceful world that we wouldn't have all the we wouldn't have all these conflicts. And so that's the that is what I would suggest is the sales pitch. That's the bricks. So that's bricks rising. The bricks, the bricks rising. At the same time, you know, the US and the and the UK and the, and the EU as well have responded to that by kind of welcoming it, going, yeah, maybe we should have more multilateralism, but we don't want Brazil and South Africa. We want Poland and we want, you know, so so it's 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 a this horse, the horse trade, Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this horse trading going on about the about control of global governance through the UN. Now a lot of people see that. A lot of people that defend this new multipolar world order consider it to be a defense of the nation state because, and that's why I spoke about the Westphalia model in the first article, which is actually a bit of a myth. But the but the idea is of the nation state being this bulwark against global governance. You can't introduce global government if if the world is run with all these sovereign nation states who are, you know, sovereign in their own right and who are able to negotiate 
agreements with each other on an equal basis, which is the it's, which is the fundamental, I guess, the idea that people think came from the Westphalia, the peace of Westphalia. We never learn about that or the Holy Roman Empire, and it's so. I, I just hadn't thought of it that way until I read your article because I always think of we hear, hear a lot about the church versus the kings and then Protestantism and like that's really the essence of when I think about the emergence of the modern nation state. But yeah. I never think about the Holy Roman Now I really want to read about it. But I want before we wrap this global governance thing. I'm wondering how that folds in with the transparency and accounting stuff that they're trying to push down with the sustainability. So like the FASB, there's FASB is the accounting standards. And now there's like SASB or something, which are like the sustainability measurement standards. Do those things fold in together or am I, am I looking for connections where they aren't there? Well, no, I mean, I think that you, you, you're, that's very crucial what you've just said there, because while this surface argument is going on about um, national sovereignty and diffusing power, and you know this is this is the argument we're almost given to discuss. While that's going on, things like the International Sustainability Standards Board, which was announced at COP twenty six, is is surging ahead with its setting up its control mechanism of things like ESG and the ETF bundles that are. That ESGs are, that are traded within ESG assets are traded within the ETFs and all that kind of stuff. That that mechanism is being constructed, and when you look, and when and that is a global mechanism for sustainable development and for investment in those projects around the world. If you look at what Russia and China are doing, who are supposedly the leaders of this new multipolar thing, whatever it, whatever people are calling it. If you look at what Russia and China are doing, they are full on on board with that. In fact, when the ISSB was first announced at COP26, which is going to be part, of, it's going to be within the Financial Stability Board, um, they, China offered to host it. China immediately offered to host it. So, I mean, so I, they yeah. are they are full on with the sustainability. Agenda, and I would I would argue that sustainable development and SDGs is the creation of a new international monetary and financial. It's 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 the foundation for the creation of a new international monetary and financial system. It is the foundation for a new global economy, a decarbonized economy, low carbon economy that's going to be based on carbon trading and and carbon offsetting, and also the 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 creation of natural assets natural asset companies, the, the capitalization of nature yes. itself. Oh yes. Right? So all this is happening and Russia and Russia and China are fully on board with it. So there I've, is I've heard you talk about that. That's, yeah. that's the important bit, I I think. Commoditizing natural assets like a tree. Oh, I absolutely yeah. have all right. This is I'm already I'm already on part four of our conversation, so I don't know how much time you have. But um, so we're going to wrap this up. But the port, part four I want to talk about is all of that. And um, it reminds me of a book that you might have read that I definitely read, which sounds like it wouldn't be relevant. But Proudy wrote a JFK assassination book. You know, Proudy was like the deep throat of um, Watergate. He's an American, yeah. but he wrote... Oh, I haven't read it. Oh, no, I haven't he, read it. It's P-R-O-U-T-Y. Like he, I forget what his like big 
thing was that just exposed everything. But when I was reading this JFK book in the introduction, it's at least 20 years old. The introduction, he said, when Magellan circumnavigated the globe, the empires understood the task of the problem and realized they could actually dominate the world. And that's what they've been trying to do for 500 years. And I just think it's funny because then when I see, that's how I looked at like Vietnam and Korea and stuff. I was like, they were, it was mercantile. Like those those mm-hmm. wars were kind of mercantilistic to so get them out of the rice paddies, get them to rice factories, get them out of eating their own rice, getting to buy rice. And now, and then I keep thinking like, they're going further. They're making the human being like they, they just can't. It's a, a they. It's just the, the global corporate impetus. It doesn't even, that doesn't even have to be, uh, it doesn't have to have a central brain. It just wants to grow. And, and the only things left is to consume uh, and make consumers out of every human being. But I hadn't thought of every blade of grass. Although Alison McDowell mm-hmm. talks about that and the Ice Age Farmer yeah, talks yeah. about that, blockchaining like every tomato. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's the mega, mega big picture. And of course, the teeny, teeny, tiny picture now. But boy, was that fun. I cannot wait for more. And you are Ian Davis, I-A-I-N-D-A-V-I-S.com. I want people to know your website. Yeah. And and if you want, what do you want to tell people to look for or drive people to your books, your articles? What's interesting yeah, no, I to mean, you? Yeah, um, yeah. So um, yeah, please check out my my site, which is iandavis.com. That's where most of my articles that um, uh, that that go first usually, and then they're often re-syndicated by other people, which I'm very lucky that people do that. Um, but I also write original material for Unlimited Hangout, and I also write original material for UK Column. Um, I would, you know, hope that you check out you Unlimited. I'm sure you I'm sure your yes. viewers are familiar with Unlimited Hangout, yes. and but they may not be familiar so familiar with UK Column. But I mean, I hope people will check out my latest book, uh, Pseudo Pandemic. I wrote it. It came out in 2021. But um, what I tried to do in the book was I tried to collate and catalogue all of the information as it was progressed, as we progressed through it, uh, the, the, what I've called the pseudo-pandemic, uh, all the information that was publicly available, that was in the public domain that we just weren't told about. So if you want to know what, what the, the story behind the story was, please read pseudo-pandemic because I think I've covered quite a fair bit of it in there. What's your Twitter handle? I forget. Uh, underscore, then all one word, in this together. In this together, yes. Uh, that was super, super fun. I knew it would be. I can't wait to do it again. Thank you so, so much for your time, Ian Davis. It's my pleasure, Mommy. Thank you very much. 